Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Hanging in there? We're in 2 Corinthians this morning, chapter 1. My name is Robert, one of the pastors here. Glad to see you all this morning. Grab a Bible if you can. If you got one, there's, if you don't have one, there's some in the seat in front of you. And uh, I encourage you to, to find our text this morning while you're doing that. Uh, let me pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we, we want to be fed this morning. We, we come to your word today asking that you would nourish us, that you would tend to your flock. That's what we are. We are the sheep of your pasture. So Lord, would you care for us? Would you encourage us this morning by your word. We pray for those here today who, uh, who are not part of your flock, those who have not trusted in Christ. We ask that you would open their eyes as well to see the beauty of the gospel, the goodness of following you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, <clears throat> 1 through 11. I'm going to read. I may comment along the way, uh, and then I've got a few points for us. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. That's how Paul opens his letter to the Corinthian church, or at least the second known letter we have to them. Maybe you've read 1 Corinthians, you know a lot of the ins and outs of the church there. They have their own issues, but Paul writes to them here 
seemingly to defend himself, to defend his own apostleship. As you continue to read the letter, you you see a lot of points that Paul makes that highlight how they can trust him, and in fact, how he has been entrusted with giving to them the gospel message. Paul is, is very well acquainted with what he calls Christ's sufferings. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11, starting in verse 23. This is what Paul says later in this letter about the sufferings and afflictions that he has endured. He says this, Is anyone a servant of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times, three times I was shipwrecked. Has anyone ever been shipwrecked in here? Paul has been shipwrecked three times. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul knows Christ's sufferings. But, especially for a guy like Paul, you may think these sufferings, in fact the Corinthians thought that these sufferings he had experienced were perhaps a sign that he was an illegitimate apostle. And you think of Jonah, for example, the prophet sent to Nineveh, who in his refusal to do so is is himself shipwrecked, swallowed whole by a large fish. And it's very clear that this is a a punishment, a, a discipline of the Lord for Jonah in the midst of all this, because Jonah was behaving, he was acting unfaithfully, he was acting without faith. Maybe if you're Paul, you're wondering, am I, is this, am I on the right path here? Especially a guy like Paul who in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 points out that his apostleship is pretty unique among all the apostles. To be an apostle generally meant that you were a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. You had seen him face to face. But Paul's situation where he meets Jesus after his resurrection is unique. He's on the road going to persecute Christians, and Jesus confronts him there on the way to Damascus. The only witnesses are the other men who were with him on their way to help him in this persecution process. Jesus appears and then is gone in a moment. Can you trust Paul? The the Corinthians wonder if all these sufferings and hardships that he has experienced might be saying that that in fact their, their hope is misguided. But the thrust of this passage, the, the aim of what Paul says here in verse 3 in particular, is this, blessed 
be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Paul, the man who was shipwrecked three times, this is how he leads off this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's going on in Paul's heart? Why is he able to say this with such confidence? Why should we also be able to read these words and even embrace them as our own, the thoughts of our own hearts? Let me give you three, three points here from this passage this morning. Number one, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Now that may seem obvious. That's pretty verb- that's verbatim, straight from the text. The the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is, in fact, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. See, it's, it's an interesting way that Paul chooses to phrase this opening to his letter. We know, for example, and Paul himself knows and and teaches throughout his letters, all the New Testament testifies to this, the Old Testament testifies to this, we know that Jesus is fully, truly divine. He is God in the flesh. But, But the way Paul phrases this highlights another element of the natures of Jesus. You notice that he says, He refers to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not to negate the divinity of Jesus, but it gives us a glimpse into the reality of who he is, that he is not just fully God, but that he is also fully man. Why why does that matter? Well, a couple things are going on here. It's a subtle reminder of Jesus' human nature, How many of you are human, right? Most of you. It's a reminder of the identity that we share with Jesus, which is particularly important here as we think about affliction and suffering and the comfort that might be ours in Christ. Jesus is human. It's a subtle emphasis on Christ's role as our mediator, the only mediator between God and man. Jesus stands in the gap in a way that only he can because he is truly God and truly man. And this is worth noting as we consider what then bridges the gap between suffering and comfort, between affliction and encouragement. There is a lot in this passage that tells us what we share with Christ. I don't know if you notice how many times that word is used in in this passage alone, the word share. Sharing, we've shared. And there are things that Paul points out he shares with the Corinthians, but then there are things that he points out, and I think this is underlying all of it, that we share as Christ's people with Jesus himself. At the center of all of this sharing, at the center of all of this hope that we have in Christ is resurrection hope that is only found in him. So let's keep going in the passage, and I think you'll, you'll see this bear itself out. But I think it's important to, to just notice what's going on here, what Paul is setting us up for right at the outset. 
Now, you notice, too, the parallel sort of language that Paul uses. He mentions the Father of our Lord, and then in the next breath, he mentions the Father of mercies. In one instance, he mentions the God of our Lord, and then in the next second, he mentions the God of all comfort and encouragement. Let's take these one at a time. He is the Father of mercies, which is to say that he's merciful. Our God is merciful by nature. It's his nature to be merciful, not vindictive, not exacting, but he he delights to be merciful. He delights to give to undeserving people what they least deserve. He's not only the, the he's not only merciful by nature. He he is the origin of mercy. He's the source of mercy. He's also the God of all comfort. And another way you could translate this word for comfort is encouragement, which I think is a helpful thing to remember as well. He's the God of all comfort, the God of all encouragement, which, like being the Father of mercies, means that he is comforting and encouraging by nature. He is the source of all comfort. Does this characterize the way you think of God? Does this characterize the God that you worship? Chances are, if you're, if you're human, and we've established that most of us in this room are, chances are that, that you have a warped view of God. Between just the, the, the influences in your life, the things that have shaped you, and just the, own, the, the fallenness of your own heart, you probably don't see your creator the right way. Let me give you a couple of examples that stand in stark contrast to what Paul is pointing out here. Do you see God as a taskmaster? Do you see God as a taskmaster? Someone who, who, who cracks the whip, who, who pushes you, who makes you act and move and behave and live in a certain way with no regard for, for you at all. Right, the, the God who is a taskmaster might say something like, rub some dirt in it, right? Tough it out. You're going to be okay. Suck it up. Do you see God as withholding? Now we, uh, we can't let her get, get lax on this. No, 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 no. We, we got, we, if we compliment here, if we encourage here, then, then laziness sets in. If we let them know they're doing a good job, if we let them know, if we let him know that he's serving me faithfully, then all the little trip-ups and the miss-ups and everything, it'll all, it'll all come cascading in because he'll let up his guard and he won't try as hard. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, exactly where you thought we'd be going here this morning. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. This is how the Lord has revealed himself to his people almost from the Uh, get-go. This is how he characterizes himself before Moses as they set out in the wilderness. The Lord passed before Moses and he proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There's a lot going on in that little revelation, isn't there? Maybe, maybe you, were, you were riding along fine in the first half of that. Oh, yeah, mercy, grace. This is, I like this. And then we got to, but he won't clear the guilty. And you thought, what just happened? How did this happen? I got whiplash just reading two verses. How, how do these go together? Is the conclusion of this passage contradictory? No. You would expect I would say that. No, it's not. But it's, it's not contradictory because the fact that the Lord does not clear the guilty highlights his justice, and it reminds us of what is at stake as he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, which is to say that our God justifies the ungodly. Now understand what I'm saying. When we think of God being merciful or gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and love, sometimes, and I think the world points us this direction, we assume this means that the Lord turns a blind eye to our sin. That the Lord just kind of ignores it. But that's not what's going on here. Now the Lord is very well acquainted with it. He sees it better than you or I do. But in his justice, he has justified sinners like you and me if you're in Christ. It's not that he has said, no, you're not a sinner. It's that he said, I'm actually going to, I'm going to forgive you of your sin. I'm going to make you righteous. You see the difference? He's not ignoring. He's dealing with it head on. And this is what makes him so merciful. This is what makes him so gracious. This is why the slowness of his anger, the abundance of his steadfast love, his quickness to forgive is so astounding because he is, he is not just just, but he is the justifier of anyone who has faith in Jesus. Justification is not turning a blind eye to sin, which highlights just how incredible his grace and mercy are. And of course, Christ is the ultimate expression of who God is in all of his mercy and all of his grace and all of his patience, faithfulness, and yes, justice. This is, this is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, because of this, our God and Father abundantly comforts us in all our affliction. Look again at verse 5. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Let's, let's, take, let's break this down, take it one half at a time. As we share abundantly in 
Christ's sufferings. Now, I haven't mentioned this already. I think it's been sort of apparent, but just to, just to make sure we're all on the same page, when we read this passage, you understand we're not just talking about some sort of generic suffering. We're not just talking about affliction of any and every kind. We're talking about something a little more specific. He mentions specifically Christ's sufferings, the suffering of Christ. But I think that can be defined in a couple of ways here, and I want to explain that. Number one, and this is maybe the most obvious, this is suffering that results from gospel faithfulness. Suffering that results from gospel faithfulness. Whether it is in the proclamation of the gospel, like, like Paul certainly would have in mind in, in some way. Right, like the, declaring the truths of God's word, declaring the gospel, whether from a pulpit or from the front seat of your car to the small people freaking out in the back seat. Wherever it is, you're proclaiming the gospel. I'm sorry, that just kind of hit me in a moment. I don't know where it came from. There's a suffering that comes from proclaiming the gospel, from living the gospel out. If you think of uh, or turn to, to Philippians 1.29, now don't turn there, just listen to me. For it has been granted to you, Paul says there, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering is not the exception to the Christian life. It's actually the expectation of the Christian life, is that as you are united to Jesus, you will also be united along with him in suffering. But it's not just suffering that results from gospel faithfulness, it's also suffering that challenges gospel faithfulness. And I think that's where this idea of suffering really expands and is helpful. There is a kind of suffering, and I think it's all really relative to you and your experience of life and the things that you're accustomed to and your own personality. There's a kind of suffering that challenges gospel faithfulness by tempting us to reject or even renounce the gospel. And the flip side of that coin, by giving the opportunity to proclaim or, or vindicate gospel hope. You know, the, 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 the cancer diagnosis may not be suffering because you've proclaimed Jesus, but it is certainly a moment of reflection on the hope of the gospel. And there is a real fork in the road in situations like that and in countless other examples of suffering where you can go one way or the other, where you can cling to the gospel or veer off course from it to other things, right? We, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, Paul says. But not only that, get this, we, through Christ, share abundantly in comfort too. What Paul is getting at is that Christ is the instrument of God's comfort to his people. He, he's the way this comfort is applied to our lives. How is that? How does that happen? If you believe the gospel, you are in 
Christ. You are united with him by faith and preserved by a hope that is also in Christ and in his resurrection. If you believe the gospel, you are in Christ, united with him by faith and preserved by a hope that is also in Christ and in his resurrection. Look with me at a few passages. Philippians 3, 10 and 11. Paul says that he does everything that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is the unshaken hope that Paul refers to in verse 7. Did you catch that? Our hope in you is unshaken. And it's, it's not a Pollyanna, naive kind of optimism we're talking about. It's grounded in something tangible. It's grounded in something very real. In fact, the, the realest capital R thing that there is, which is the hope of Christ, the hope of resurrection. He's not just talking about, well, we share sufferings and we'll probably share. We should expect to share in comfort as well, I hope. Now, there's something underneath undergirding it all. You think of Paul's example of comfort in extreme affliction here in the latter part of this passage, as we've read, verses uh, 8 through 11. He describes it, he describes the suffering and affliction that he has endured as nothing short of a death sentence. Now, maybe it really was a death sentence. I mean, there's always a possibility with Paul that it really was a death sentence. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. And I think we all know and have felt at various times in our lives that we were under the shadow and weight of death itself. And yet in the middle of it all, he says that this was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This is not a generic hope any more than it's a generic suffering. This is hope in the resurrection life of Jesus. It's not ourselves who are powerful against sin, death, and hell. We know that that is not going to work. What do we bring? We bring nothing. But it's resurrection hope instead. If you look at verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. This is because the cross bridges the gap between suffering and comfort. The cross does this because there, death gave way. It yielded to eternal life. At the cross, sin was exchanged for righteousness. Death 
was exchanged for life. 2 Corinthians 4, later here in this letter, starting in verse 8, Paul, he goes on to elaborate on this affliction. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Or later on in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us, and I would say preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Ah, that's, That's the resurrection hope that Paul has. That's the resurrection hope that we are called to have and carry with us. Through all life's afflictions, through all all examples of suffering big and small, every opportunity, every temptation to turn from the gospel and turn towards something else, we are called to a comfort that is grounded, rooted in resurrection life through Jesus. So what counterfeit comforts are you relying on? Why, Why is this so hard? You would think this would be easy, but instead we turn to so many other things, and they're not even things that you could really justify, you know? They're not, they're not even things that you could really say, well, I mean, I kind of understand how these would be in competition with each other. We turn from the comfort of the gospel, the comfort of resurrection life, we turn from that, and we turn to things like sitting on the couch for hours and watching TV so that we just don't have to think about what we're dealing with. And that's, you know, that's kind of the baseline, you know. There are, there are way more serious things that we turn to that are, that are certainly more visibly sinful and wrong. Oh, man, we're, we're so easily distracted. And I think very often we, we want to be distracted. And we think we found comfort. We think we found a respite. But in fact, we, we're, just, we're just self-medicating and getting our mind off of whatever the real problem is, which is not going to go away because you binge-watched another season of The Office. I don't know where that came from. There's a theological concept called union with Christ. I think it's one that Christians would do well to meditate on more. You have been united with Christ in his sufferings, yes, but also through him, comfort. Circling back, remember what we just read in 2 Corinthians 4.10. We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What a picture. I mean, that, that's not going to sell you many mugs. Uh, but what a picture of the Christian life. Is this how you think about it? You probably should. And, and not in a fatalistic way, right? This is not a fatalistic statement. We, we always carry in our bodies the death of Jesus. To the world, that, that's preposterous. That's ridiculous. Right? They lock you up for saying something like that. But, but in, in the gospel, oh, man. Now, there, there, there is a hope that, that goes beyond that because at the same time, we know that this means that we also carry the life of Jesus. 
in our bodies. And that, that we might manifest the glory of the Lord to the world and to one another. That's a sobering and I think very powerful visual. One implication of this is that, and I, and I, I think, man, I want you to hear me on this. Because I think there are a lot of people who probably need to hear it uh, more than they realize. You realize the, in, in all of this passage, underlying it all, kind of implicit in every word, is this truth that no one, no one is expendable in God's redemptive plan. No one is expendable in God's redemptive plan. Think about it. Have you, have we reduced ourselves to just pawns in God's scheme? Is that how you think of yourself? Earlier I asked the question, do you think of God as like a taskmaster or someone who is just withholding by nature? And that scenario in, 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 in situations like that, yeah, you, you would absolutely be just a cog in the wheel. You, you're just expendable. You can be just chewed up, spit out, and, and moved on with because there's something greater at stake kind of, a, kind of a thing. Have you reduced other people in your estimation of them to, to just pawns in God's design? I think for my part, I am most prone to discouragement in times when I feel expendable to the Lord. When I, I just feel like I'm kind of functioning in some sort of role, that I, I've just got some sort of mantle placed upon me, but it's not a, it, it doesn't really matter, you know? Like the Lord's gonna do what he's gonna do, he's gonna use me or he's not gonna use me, but it, he gets the glory. I think a, a, a key point underlying all this is that you are not expendable to the Lord. That the Lord who, who sent his son to die in your place, man, he, he loves you enough that you might share in Jesus' sufferings and in Jesus' comfort. Right, that's not impersonal. That's not something God does to people who are expendable. The, the Lord loves his saints, and he cares for us through Jesus. Yeah, there's, there's grace in salvation, right? We bring nothing to the table. We are saved by nothing in ourselves but by the favor of the Lord, and yet that grace doesn't cease there, but, but it is actually designed, is meant to sustain us through the Christian life. So do you see the gospel as merely an impetus or do you see it as your sustaining hope? That's the question. Number three, our God and Father abundantly comforts us so that we might be conduits of comfort and encouragement. How often have you been encouraged directly or indirectly by the words or example of another believer? 
I mean, Paul, he just he summarizes it so well, it's, it's hardly worth even elaborating on because you can't really state it any more clearly than he does. Have you been afflicted? Have we been afflicted? It's for other people's comfort and even their final salvation. All of that is at stake in our affliction. Are you comforted? Have you received comfort? Are you being comforted even now? Okay, well, that's also for other people's comfort in affliction. Maybe now, maybe later. But you're not, none of this is meant to dead end on you. Not your suffering, not your comfort or encouragement. All of this is meant to actually flow through you to God's people. This is how, because we're united with Christ, this is how the Lord cares for his people through Christ. It's not through just some sort of feeling, though the Holy Spirit is called the comforter for a reason. But it's also through one another. As we give and receive comfort and blessing and encouragement. The question you should probably wrestle with here, are you the kind of person who gives out encouragement and comfort? God's nature in this passage is one. He is given the title of the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, not He's our God, and sometimes he likes to comfort people. He's our Father, and sometimes he is merciful. But rather, in in everything he does, all the time, he is always looking to be encouraging, merciful, comforting to his saints. And I think likewise, we as his people should pick that up ourselves. But that, that is easier said than done. Right? We, we don't possess the kind of intrinsic, merciful, kind, gracious nature that our Father does. And yet, if you're in Christ, this is how He works it into your heart. He works it into your life. And He works through you to minister to one another. This is not merely, hey, you know, I see you, you're doing great. You look good. It's really, hey, I see your life. I see you, I hear what you're saying, and the Lord is doing great things in and through your faithfulness. See the difference? Oh man, we, our hope is in the Lord, and we want to see the Lord in one another. We want to encourage one another in the Lord. Where do you point other people? And not only where, but, but when. Comforting, encouraging I think so often these things are reactive. They're responses from us when we witness it, when we witness suffering and affliction in other people. We, we respond by comfort and encouragement. But if this is meant to be part of just the DNA of God's people, then we should also be proactive in our comfort and encouragement too. On this point, I hope it's, it's obvious how important the local church is. why it's so important to belong, to be a part of, to be known by a local body of believers. And not, and not just to like be, be on a roll somewhere, you understand, but, but to be known and to know other people. How, how, how does the Lord comfort and encourage and sustain his people apart from your role in it as one of his saints? How's he going to do it? He, he, uses, he uses this. He uses the relationships that form in this context. Yeah, he uses other means too. But this is such a no-brainer. 
Now let's be the kind of people who, who flesh this out, who are always, like our Father, comforting, merciful, and encouraging to one another, not because of anything in us, but because of the mercy that we've been shown in Christ, because of the resurrection hope that we have in him. In our merciful's, merciful Father's hands, pain and affliction become his servants, and we become vessels of gospel comfort to others. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we thank you for, for this word. Oh, how often we need to be reminded, how often we need the embers of our souls stoked to follow you in comfort and encouragement and also to receive from you comfort and encouragement that is not rooted in the things of this world, the philosophies of man, Lord, we don't want to turn a blind eye to suffering, our own or anyone else's. We we don't want to ignore affliction. Lord, help us to, to stand fast. Not in our own strength, but in, in the strength that you generously, graciously delight to give. Through Jesus. So that as we face death, or what seems like death more often than not, we can do so with the resurrection hope of of our Lord and Savior. Lord, you have taken our sins away. Not just buried them somewhere, you have dealt with them. And you have declared us to be righteous in your Son by faith. Lord, I pray for folks here this morning who maybe have never done that, have not believed that that you would open their eyes to see the beauty that is following you. You are not some taskmaster. You're not some uh, king or, or, or lord who issues commands to his vassals and cares nothing for them. Lord, you delight in caring for your people. Just as you died for us in our sin, you you also, through Jesus, intercede for us even now. Caring for us in all the minute details of our lives. And even the, the extremities of affliction that we face. So Lord, give us joy in Jesus' name. Help us to be joyful people. Be with us now as we sing to you with joyful hearts.